For most English-speaking Christians, this familiar passage in Luke is known as the parable of the prodigal son. Our dictionaries say that the first meaning of prodigal is wasteful, thriftless, squandering, and reckless. And that certainly describes the younger son's behavior in this parable. But when his father welcomes him, he chooses to describe the son in a different way. We had to celebrate and rejoice, the father says, for this son of mine was lost and is now found. That's an important point to hold because it shifts the focus now away from what was causing the son to be wasteful and thriftless and squandering and reckless. In essence, says the father, he was lost. In this context, I hear lost as a very compassionate word. as the father's way of saying that his son was just not himself while he was in a distant land. Instead of condemning him, the father still sees who his son truly is deep down. And he is overwhelmed with joy when he holds him in his arms again. We miss the significance of this when we hear this parable on its own, as we did this morning, without the two short parables that Jesus tells right before this in chapter 15 of Luke. If you look for yourself, you will see that Jesus prefaces this parable with two other short parables about being lost and found. In the first one, Jesus says, Which of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost. And when he finds it, he rejoices. He comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice for me, for I have found the sheep that was lost. In the second parable, Jesus says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that was lost. In our pew Bibles, those first two parables are called the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep. So I think it would be fitting then if we called this third parable the parable of the lost son. Or, as we will soon see, the parable of two lost sons. And when I hear that language, I begin to shift my own thinking. Instead of dwelling on the specific actions, for example, of the younger son, of squandering an inheritance and hitting rock bottom, I start to dwell on the experience of being lost. And then I start to see myself in the story. A distant land no longer means some place on a map. But the places that I go to when I get disconnected from my roots as a child of God and disoriented in my journey as a follower of Christ means the places 
where I use my own God-given gifts and resources in selfish ways. Places where I just lose sight of who I am in relationship to God and to my neighbor. And I don't think I'm alone in this. In truth, most of us are lured away from our home with God by the idea of being independent, of making it on our own, of pursuing the good life for ourselves like the younger son in the story. That seems to be what led him so far from home. But I think we can say that the second son was also lost, even though he never left the farm. If being lost means wandering far from our true home with God and neighbor, then the older son, too, went far astray. As the father said, he had everything he needed and more, but he could not suppress the feelings of jealousy and resentment that came over him when he saw his brother getting something that he just did not deserve. In hearing the story, we can be critical of this elder son, or we can see ourselves again and remember how vulnerable we are to these same temptations. In many respects, this parable sounds like a retelling of the Jonah story that the scribes and the Pharisees would have known so well. And if you know it too, you will remember how Jonah felt when God showed unconditional grace and mercy to the wayward city of Nineveh, saying to them, in effect, I love you, and you are mine. It made Jonah angry and depressed because people were not only getting something they didn't deserve, they were being welcomed into community with those who played by the rules, those who worked hard every day to please God. To the reader, Jonah seems just like a self-centered whiner. But then we realize how much he represents the thoughts and feelings we have today about rewards and entitlement and privilege and the merit-based system that governs our society and our institutions. For us, too, it is so easy to get lost in the world where doing the right thing and playing by the rules earns us what we selfishly want. So how will we ever change? For the younger son in the story, the turning point comes when he decides to return home to the place of origin for him, the place where he has an identity that cannot be erased. We might interpret his decision to return home as pure desperation. But Jesus offers a different explanation. In a beautiful phrase, Jesus says that he came to himself. When I hear that, I imagine the son saying, this is not who I truly am. As lost as he was, this wayward child still knew 
that he had an identity as the son of a loving father and as the inheritor of something that money could never buy. And his homecoming is one of the most tender moments recounted in any parable of Jesus. While he was still far off, Jesus says, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran out and he put his arms around him and he kissed him. And then, when the father learned that his older son was still lost in his own world of self-centeredness, he went out to him and begged him to join the feast. You are always with me, he lovingly says. All that is mine is yours, so come celebrate with us. If this were a Hallmark movie, the older son would break down weeping at this point (laughs) and just fall into his father's arms. He too would come to himself and he would ask for undeserved forgiveness and grace. And no doubt the scene would end with all of them rejoicing around the table together. But that is not the ending that Jesus gives to us. Instead, the scene fades to black with the father and the son still standing out in the field. You can hear the music and the dancing and the feasting off in the distance, but you don't know what happens next. It's almost like Jesus is inviting all of his readers to finish the story now. If we have indeed seen ourselves in it, We have to imagine now what we will do next. Will we come to the table with people that we resent? Will we abandon every bit of entitlement and privilege that makes us feel more worthy than others of blessings and comforts? Will we rejoice and be glad when grace and mercy is shown to people we loathe, and when undeserving people receive free gifts that we work hard to attain, will we see that we truly have enough? And will we acknowledge that we too are inheritors of undeserved grace and mercy every single day? And will we become the father in this story, for one another? Will we let grace and love flow through us as it did for him? Will we come home to who we are as bearers of a love that is deeper and wider than all of those forces that lead us astray? Whatever the case, we can hold on to the promise today that this love does exist for us and within us because God exists and because God is love. However lost we are, there will always be a divine love that watches for our return and runs out to embrace us. There will always be a sacred voice that says, you are always with me. 
and all that I have is yours. So come, join the feast, celebrate life together with the whole family of God. For this promise that never fails, I say, thanks be to God. Amen.